All right, as we come back together this morning, again, uh, want to encourage you to take opportunity to use those Advent readings. It's just, just a great privilege to, uh, especially in this season where physical uh, closeness can be often difficult, to know that we're reading and reflecting and praying through and rejoicing through the same passages of Scripture during this Advent season uh, can be such an encouragement uh, that we are not alone as we're bound together by the Holy Spirit through His uh, Word. And so take advantage of that, as well as the prayer uh, time later this afternoon, hosted by Elder Calvert, uh, with uh, time for Scripture reading and prayer. Uh, those small ways that we can uh, join together and work against the uh, sense uh, and even the, the temporary reality of being physically separated as uh, it just feels so wrong and backwards. Thanksgiving was so weird uh, to be uh, restricted in how many folks we could have together, but it is uh, a temporary state. And we know it's a temporary state because the Apostle Paul has told us several times that there is a great victory, that uh, things have changed because of who Jesus is. And we have been looking in chapter 5, at Paul's very uh, rapid-fire, passionate way of describing the goodness of God and how through uh, Jesus the power of sin and death have been broken and that we are at peace with God. And so this morning we are going to finish up chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 21. And let me uh, open our time by reading God's Word. Romans chapter 5, 18 through 21. Hear now God's word. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespasses, but there, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you sent your Son. We have been reminded time and time again that you, O oh God, have secured our way, our righteousness, our covenant standing through your Son. We pray this morning that as we reflect on the power of a God who sees all sin and responds in his acts of grace and mercy. We pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged and refreshed in the good news of a God who sees all and acts on behalf of his people, that his creation might be restored and that our fellowship might be renewed. May all that's done and said this morning in this sermon encourage that union with you and anything that is untrue or unbeneficial to the building up of your people. May those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. 
As many of you know, I often talk about my grandfather in Wyoming, but I had another grandfather in Colorado who was uh, a large German man. Uh, Carl uh, was, well, always an imposing figure. And as an elementary age kid, there was nothing more fun than trying to best grandpa with our own physical prowess, me and my cousin Bane. And one of the things we would do would be to get into arm wrestling matches. And Bane and I were pretty evenly matched. But of course, we would often feel as we arm wrestled grandpa that we were making progress. That even though we could barely see our hands in that massive bear thing he called a hand, uh, and we disappeared uh, in, inside that big grasp, he would let us feel like maybe, maybe we were strong enough to beat him this time. Maybe chronological advancement had gotten to him and that we would finally, finally win the arm wrestling match with Grandpa Vogel. And then, of course, he would uh, be called away by Grandma or in some way just be distracted and inadvertently throw us across the room as he pinned our hands to the table uh, with a flick of his arm. The, uh, the fight was not even mildly fair. Uh, but at certain moments, it almost seemed like we were equal. There is a way in which Paul is describing the difference between sin and death, which seemed strong, which seemed to have power, and how significantly greater Christ's power is, that when he comes and deals with sin and death, it really isn't a fair fight. It was never supposed to be. The creator of the universe, although it cost him a great deal, the outcome was never in doubt. And that the power of the one who set righteousness back upon his people was far greater than the, than the power of sin and death. And so we look at this passage being reminded that in our own state, we often feel like those uh, of our Eastern uh, friends who see power uh, of good and evil almost as equal as yin and yang, requiring one another to be in harmony and in balance. That is not the biblical picture. Although that makes sense from a human perspective that we would see good and evil almost as equal in their power and almost holding each other in tension like the keystone in an arch. It's just not simply true. The reality is that sin and death are no match for God, and that Jesus' righteousness was no match for my sin or your sin. As egregious as it is, as overwhelming as it is to us, it is simply never a fair fight between God and death and sin. He will always be victorious. He has been victorious, and that is the confidence that we have. It is the context of this chapter that we're in. Be reminded that in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, we have peace with God, which has changed our understanding of suffering. You see, if it was a fair fight, if death and good, if evil and righteousness were roughly the same amount, it would be pretty impossible to imagine that suffering could be redeemed. 
it would be something that needed to be avoided or escaped or traveled through as quickly as possible, but not as a means of actually building our hope. Because what hope can there be if evil and righteousness are constantly necessary for a balanced life? There's no hope in being in a pleasant place, knowing that for balance to be achieved at some point, death and sin have to invade my life to re-establish harmony in the universe. Paul sees no such harmony in shaking hands with death and evil. And sin and death, were, uh, though they create suffering, they cannot defeat the power of Christ. And therefore, in Christ, what was about destruction and decay is revived and renewed into something that restores, that chastens and encourages, that grows his people. So with that context, let's quickly go through uh, these verses. We're going to start uh, at verse 18, obviously. And there is that clear statement that the trespasses led to condemnation for all. But because of the righteousness of one, the greater one, covenant relationship, covenant righteousness was restored. And we've talked a lot about how Paul uses what we translate as justification in a broader sense, uh, in his Jewish sense, of what it meant to be in right relationship with God what it meant to be in covenant relationship, not just uh, a legal definition that I'm no longer guilty, but that I am actually in relationship, that, restrict, that all of the promises of God are again mine in Christ and yours and all of his people restored to right status. And this uh, is life, being alive. For uh, by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, but so by the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. And that one we've already talked about in, is in Paul's understanding, seamlessly, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God and a man. And he has expressed both to us already in this chapter that Jesus is the Son of God, therefore God incarnate, therefore up to the task of defeating sin and death, but also a man and therefore a right uh, replacement for, Abraham, uh, for Adam. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 20 talks about the law, and this can often be a real challenge because we see this, and we see in a couple of places where Paul is using his shorthand, and we feel like Paul's words don't quite make sense or that it may paint God in a bad light. I mean, let's be honest. Taken out of context, a verse like 20, now the law came to increase trespasses, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Can't we just get more grace without sin? Why was the law given to us so that we could sin more, so that God could show his graciousness? Now, Paul is going to deal with that more in chapter 6 and 7 and 8 and help disabuse us of any notion of uh, wrongdoing on God's part. But here in chapter 5, it's important that we can already understand 
that what he's talking about and what the language really is in the Greek and the scholars tell us is more in kin with the law highlighting, giving greater detail and depth. One illustration that's given is that it's kind of like the old slides that we had when you'd uh, have those little cardboard uh, surrounded uh, slides. And you'd look at a picture, say, of the Grand Canyon, and you'd kind of hold it up. And if you didn't have any additional light, it's a small picture. And it doesn't take up much room. And there's not a whole lot, at least to the eye, before there's a projection, much detail. And in many ways, all of us, because we're fallen, apart from the law, have a vague sense of right and wrong. We don't know the depth of our depravity. We might imagine that we're mostly good with just a little bit bad, and that the things we do wrong, as long as they don't hurt other people, really don't have much eternal weight or significance. Who's really harmed? And that can be kind of the view of a slide. You're kind of, well, the Grand Canyon, it looks like a canyon. I don't know how large it is. I don't know how grand it is uh, from this slide, but I can see that there is a canyon. And then, of course, you put it into the slide projector, and in many ways, the law is like a slide projector. All of the sudden, that small picture is thrown up on the screen, and that screen can be massive like a movie theater, and all there becomes then an opportunity to see how big the Grand Canyon really is. And all of a sudden the detail starts to come out and we begin to appreciate that this is not just merely a small uh, water run in our backyard in between uh, the soft dirt that's created a mini canyon in our flower bed. You see the grandeur and the power and the scope. Tragically, that is also true of what the law does to reveal how deep and profound the problem of human sin and death and brokenness really are. Even the laws that we sometimes joke about uh, regarding the cleanliness or whether or not you cook uh, a goat in its mother's milk and we say, well, that's kind of odd. And yet, if we think just a moment about the implications of the fall and sin and death. The fact that death has invaded every crack and crevice of creation becomes highlighted by even the ceremonial laws, which remind the children of Israel time and time again, you can't walk around a broken and fallen world without getting contaminated with sin, let alone what's in your own heart. It disabuses us of any notion that sin is but a small thing for the human, but an all-encompassing fall for God's creation. And so sin doesn't, in a sense, multiply. It reveals in ever greater detail. The law reveals the details of that sin. And God's grace and love then is multiplied. Because what happens is when you then zoom out even from that uh, slide, and you then get a picture from a satellite, you realize that as massive as the Grand Canyon is, it is a small thing in comparison to the whole earth, let alone the whole cosmos. And that is where God's perspective and God's power comes in, and how big his grace really is. Without the law, we might think that sin is a rather small thing, 
The law reveals how deep and big and profound the problem is, too grand and too big for us to deal with. But then as Paul pulls back the divine perspective, we now see that sin and death have a context. And in relationship to the creator of the universe, they are again put in proper perspective. That God is big enough and gracious enough and loving enough to deal with even death and sin and its extents. And therefore, his life and love are shown to be bigger and more profound because it is actually in the creation, the character of God that is manifested. And that this temporary distortion is not nearly as powerful as the very fabric on which creation was written. The fabric of the character of God, his love, his grace, his generosity, and his mercy shown forth again in Christ, which is what moves us then to 21, because that grace abounding all the more in the incarnation and in the love of God shows us that so that in sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life, leading to restoration. Again, eternal life in our day and age uh, often is thought of as uh, what happens on the other side of death in the sense of going to heaven. Uh, the language here in, in the Greek is more akin to the next age. And so what Paul is saying in much the way that we would use the phrase the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, the industrial age, the technological age, what we have in Jesus is the age of the kingdom restored, not a destruction in us moving someplace else, but a transformation of the place in which we live because once again, life is restored. Once again, the order of God's creation is being restored. It is leading us into an age of life. And that age has barely dawned. At least that's the way we feel, given the power of death and sin, particularly in an age of a pandemic. It feels like maybe the light is barely creeping over the horizon. That first purplish hue that we know is a little bit lighter than pure uh, night, but at the same time doesn't feel like we can see too much. And there isn't the warmth of the sun that we long for in the fullness and the brightness of day. Advent is a longing for that full light of day. It is an acknowledgement that the morning has broken, that the tomb is empty, that the king is sitting at the right hand of the father and that he will return and that what comes with him is life. life and covenant relationship with God. Advent is that season when we encourage one another with Paul's words that it is life eternal that is reigning through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In this season, my hope and my prayer is that we see death and decay, which seems right now to be in our mind's eye and in front of our actual eyes every moment of every day, is put rightly in its context 
we still walk through a deep canyon and valley. But Paul reminds us that there is another perspective, one that comes from a little bit further away that shows that the canyon has an end, that dawn is breaking, that the sun is coming over the horizon, and that it is in the person of Christ that we find our confidence and hope, not in our ability to see, not in our ability to manage the canyon, not in our ability to fulfill the law, but resting in the right actions of our King, who is the Creator. So in this season, as we gather together later this afternoon, as we pray and as we go through the Advent readings, my encouragement, my question for you as we uh, end our time together is, what ways have you seen grace reigning? Paul says here that grace reigns. And in this season, as we come off of Thanksgiving, it's another way to ask that question, what are you thankful for? And in this season, what are the things that you can give testimony to God's grace, God's love, and God's healing power. Those are all signs of the Advent. Going back to our scripture readings this morning, if we're awake, if we're paying attention, if we're sober-minded, we will see the Advent of God. We will know the signs. We will rejoice in each increasing ray of grace and mercy and light that comes over the horizon, knowing that as we go through the last hours of darkness, the last days of death and suffering's power, that the light is dawning, that the advent has come, and that our King returns, and with him all light, all warmth, and all joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful. We thank you again for your grace. Thank you for your advent. We thank you that you are returning and even now you reign. And we pray that we would delight in the sure knowledge that you are far more powerful than death and sin could ever be. That you have overwhelmed them as the one. And in the one we all find our health and our comfort. We pray that we would extend that comfort and health to all who know us. In Christ's name, amen.